hey, hey, thanks for giving this week's episode a spin. I appreciate everyone and all the feedback I get, um, the follows, the reviews um, on this podcast. It, it kind of makes it all – it makes it, you know, worth me doing it. I mean, I, I, I enjoy it, but just the feedback alone makes it all worthwhile. I'm going to get right to this week's episode. Um I'm not going to delay it. Uh, you know, I talked a lot last week when it was just me talking about my early season hunts. Uh, this week, we've got Zach Berkovich. He owns Whetstone Habitat, uh, wildlife biologist, land consultant, land manager, and a passionate hunter. Um, this These kind of conversations are what I love about wildlife biologists and people that are, you know, in the field, reading and consuming uh, you know, the studies, the research is because, you know, if you, if you hear a hunter talk about how they killed a big buck, I mean, take for instance, my podcast last week, it was a hunter, me talking about killing a big buck. Okay. Well, great. You know, it's a cool story. You know, it's probably a lot cooler the hunter, you know, him, him or herself. Um, but maybe you can take away some tips that you, that, that, that you can apply, you know, in your hunting season, maybe that's the case. Someone like Zach, even if you don't own you own the ground you hunt on, even if you hunt public land, even if you have access or in a hunting club and can't manipulate the habitat, you will take home things from today's episode from Zach, his content that will make you a better hunter. You're going to learn about like the native plant species that uh, deer prefer, what, what they consume. What really got my attention to go ahead and have this guy on, I've been following him for a while, was he posted, uh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, published an article with the National Deer Association entitled How to Create a Heat Refuge for Deer. That's right up my alley. Um, you know, in, in the Southeast, heat, the summer is the stress period. It's not the winter. Um, but so it's like that article, for instance, Maybe you don't own your own land and maybe you can't create a heat refuge, but maybe you can better recognize it. So when you're scouting through the summer and you want to try to put together an early season, very early in the heat hunt, you read his article and maybe you, you can identify what deer are looking for, what they need, and what's really good summertime hot bedding. So that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. So with that, we're, we're going to get right into it with Zach Berkovich, Wetsuit Habitat. Here we go. Thanks for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Southeast Whitetail. Thanks for uh, tuning in this week. I've got a, a very cool guest lined up on the line today, uh, Zach Vakurvich. I just asked him how to pronounce his last name, so hopefully I got it right. You did good. <laughs> um, Zach, thanks for being on today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? He, Zach uh, is a um, he'll tell more wildlife biologist, habitat land manager. He uh, runs and operates uh, Whetstone Habitat. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, so um, my company, Whetstone Habitat, I, I specialize in helping landowners manage their property for white-tailed deer. Uh, my background, I got a degree in wildlife and fisheries management. So I'm a wildlife biologist by trade. Um, I, I really make an emphasis when I'm working with clients. I, I, I like to expose them to being able to manage their property, not just with food plots, not just with hunting locations, but kind of building the complete picture as far as uh, building everything 
There's many uh, natural habitat management, food options, um, bedding thickets, kind of diversity is king for me with my management plans. Um, really trying to give the whitetail everything they need to, to prosper and, and meet their full potential on any given property. So work all across the country, Minnesota, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Kentucky, uh, Missouri. I'm, I'm kind of all over the place. It's been a pretty crazy year, especially with how the airports have been here the last uh, couple months. Um, <laughs> It, it, it's been a quite a ride this year, but yeah, so I, I do some, some outdoor riding as well. I write a lot for, QD, for QDMA or NDA, um, Drury Outdoors. Um, so that's kind of my, my background there. I've, I've worked my career. I, I started out working for West Virginia DNR. I worked for a, a hunting ranch down in Texas. Um, that was my first job out of college. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I worked for the Forest Service, kind of bounced around working for different agencies and uh, started Whetstone Habitat because every every single job I took, I was just always fascinated with the habitat management side of things. Um, just so kind of wanted to take that and run with it. And it's, it's been a fun ride. I'm sure it has. How how long have you been doing it? So Whetstone's going on three years now. I was doing it nice. kind of as a, a side hustle. Um mm my family got some property in uh, South Central Kentucky about five years ago. So when I, when I was helping my, my parents look for a, a place to get down there, um, I started writing a management plan for that property. And then my dad introduced me to some of his friends and I was helping out. We started a cooperative down there. Um, I'm really big into getting your neighbors involved with what your management plan is for your property. So we started a cooperative. I started helping those guys out with management plans and uh, eventually got to the point where uh, I wanted to do it full time. I felt like I was in a position where, where I could do that. So been my full-time gig now and it's it's incredible I, I love I love deer I wouldn't be in this if I if I wasn't a deer nut and I'm just constantly fascinated constantly learning I, yeah. I get to travel the country see some pretty awesome properties and, and help the landowners kind of experience things and see things through a different lens that I get to yeah I bet so I I'm sure that is a lot of fun and it's always nice just to see different different land different properties um so when you're Helping out a landowner, uh, how involved do you get? I mean, I, you know, I would, you know, I know a lot of landowners would just, you know, might want to report, but are you, do you work with kind of people hand in hand? Not that you're doing the work for them, like the actual, you know, sweat equity labor, but are you, you know, can you, with some clients, do you work with them like through projects or they're, where they're bending your ear and getting your opinion and, um, and I did see that you also do some land management. So like, are, are you helping people with, um, the deer herd management side, like specifics, like helping them figure out what they need to shoot, how many does, do they have good fawn recruitment that, you know, involved that way? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, my clients, once you're a client's mine, you're, you're always going to be a client of mine. Um, I'm constantly on the phone with guys checking in, asking me different food plot recommendations, mm -hmm. saying, hey, this herbicide application didn't work quite the way I wanted to. What else should I try? Um, getting ready to start this bedding thicket or kind of walking them through what order of events I, I think is most important for their property. So yes, I hand them a very thorough management plan as far as like what I want to see done with the property and how I would manage it if it was my place, because that's how I treat every single property. Um, 
truth of the matter is, is it's like <laughs> until the work gets done, it's it's just a document. So I like to be very yeah. involved. I like to keep all my clients, make sure they're they're meeting some realistic goals. And and every single time, like one of the biggest conversations I have with a with a property owner is how much time do you have to invest in this place? And I'll kind of tailor my management plans around that. Where can you get the best bang for your buck as far as an investment goes, whether it be a financial one or a time one or sweat equity uh, to get the best return for what you're trying to accomplish there. So, and as far as the second part of that question goes, yeah, I, I do like to be very involved in um, the herd management side of things. It's, it's one of those things where we were talking before we got started where everyone's kind of deer hunters are, are no different than a bass fisherman you know everyone wants a shortcut they want okay i throw i buy this 20 dollar jerk bait and i'm gonna catch an eight pounder it's the same thing with same thing with deer management like what mineral can i put out there what food plot do i need to plant like everyone just yeah. wants a shortcut to get results and at the end of the day i mean there's no substitute for time you need to let these animals grow you need to let them uh, mature, you need to manage the herd, whether that be taking a certain number of does off the property. So uh, I always recommend doing like camera surveys. Um, a lot of my states live in areas where, where you can't bait. So doing those surveys, we got to get kind of creative without to get consistent with that. Um, but whenever they do their camera surveys, I'll have them send me the information and uh, I'll do the best I can when I'm on site with them, kind of walking the property, telling them, hey, uh, I'm seeing a lot of droppings way more than I should do browse lines. Kind of every field edge has browse line on it. Yeah. Um, so I get a pretty good sense while I'm there. If you need to harvest more does, most areas I go to it's, they're not harvesting enough. Um, so that's, yeah. that's fairly constant across, across country when I'm working. It's just, it, it seems like such a tall task, but, uh, there's so many options out there now with like hunters feed the hungry. Look at a guy like Doug Duran who, yeah. works over with meat eater and he's got the sharing the land program that he started um there's so many options now to to meet your management goals uh with hunters feed hungry or the field to fork program with nda um there's options out there for landowners to uh to get those those management quotas met yeah definitely yeah and, and you mentioned um a lot of good options to you know donate venison but yeah you know I see, I see that a good bit is I don't think people are shooting enough does. Um, and then some of it is just, like I said, time. I mean, it's depending on your deer herd in your local immediate area. I mean, I, to shoot enough does can, that can, for some people, it can be work. I mean, you know, you, you've got, of course, hunting, but like, if you've got a certain number, that's a pretty high number of does you want to take. I mean, that can end up being work. Um, mm -hmm. And then, what we started to do was, is, is, I mean, we've been doing this for years, but just, you know, <clears throat> talk with, you know, friends or anyone else that, that I want, want the venison. A lot of people want venison, want the meat, but they don't, they're not going to hunt. They don't want to hunt. They have no interest. But if you ask them and if you, especially if you can butcher it or if you can have it processed, maybe kind of, you know, work out, you know, who's going to pay for it, but give it to them already processed. Mm -hmm. Instead of you know dropping off whole carcass to them, that that can cer certainly help. Um, I noticed on your website that you offer something. Uh, I forget exactly what you called it. Basically, it was like uh, a, a property evaluation of someone was looking to make a purchase. They're looking at a farm for sale. Right. Um, is that something you did? Because I that's I think a, quite frankly an excellent idea, and I, I haven't seen anybody offer that. But you know, I mean, when you look at a property like whether it's the listing agent, the listing broker or your broker, they're, you know, I mean, I'm in 
Yeah, I'm an agent. They're going to be selling you the property. And of course, every listing you see is, you know, abundant deer and turkey and quail and mature you know, timber. Right. I mean, and <laughs> yeah. if you're buying a house, if or if you're buying a, you know, a commercial property, you're going to have it, you're going to do your due diligence. You're going to have an, a, you know, property inspector, a third party come through, maybe a contractor to take a look. So why wouldn't you have a professional come in and to, yeah. and, and to take a look at the land? So I, I think that's, yeah, can you talk a little bit about that and, you know, and what you, what kind of value that, you know, you can offer to somebody? Yes. So the pre-property evaluation is what I call that. And, and surprisingly, it, it hasn't taken off quite like I thought it would. Uh, like you said, it, it's such a big investment for somebody, especially if yeah. they're investing in something as a recreational property. Like I've, I've been there, like I said, when I was helping uh, look for a, a, a family place, a property for my family going around and, um, as as good as the agents are, and as much as I trust them, it's like walking around. I'm a biologist. Like I understand. Like if I'm looking at a cedar thicket, and they're telling me, "Oh, that's 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 great bedding cover," you know, that's a, that's yeah. a deer sanctuary right there. And I'm like, no, it's over. There's nothing growing in there. You know, like I'm able to comprehend and kind of be forthright about what I'm looking at, how much work it's going to take to turn that property. Because at the end of the day, like you can look at like a well-managed property versus one that's kind of gotten away from the previous landowners. Oh, yeah. And it, it can be a matter of years until you get to the starting point of the other property that's been better maintained. So it's just something I, I offer people that are in the real estate market. I am not a real estate agent. Like I said, I'm a wildlife biologist. I'm a habitat consultant. It doesn't, I'm not going to try to sway you one way or the other. All I'm going to do is give you my honest opinion. Okay, this I think is a very huntable property. I think it's not going to take a lot to turn it around or it might be the mm -hmm. complete opposite where this place is overrun with autumn and kudzu. And it's it's going to be a ton of work. Um, yeah. So I'm able to look at that kind of uh, as an outsider and give give the landowner or future landowner my, my opinion on whether or not I think it's a, a, a sound investment for what they're looking for as far as a hunting track. Yeah, you know, I could see, I could see why a real estate agent might have reservations about bringing someone in, um, with it being their own idea, being 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 the listing age. I mean, just in case you know, you bring a biologist in and things don't really look great. I mean, it could. Um, it's just like if you have if you have a home inspector and he just finds a bunch of bad stuff with it, it could kill the deal. Well, but so be it then. I mean, I. I I mean, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, you're working for your client. So it's in their best interest to do something like that. So, I mean, unless, I mean, I would think it would be, it's not a thing. I would, I would know that it would be a phenomenal uh, tool to help sell a property. You got a farm listed for sale. You know, you can, you, you can share trail camera pictures and all that, take pictures. But if you had a biologist go through, um, and kind of come up with a, you know, a little report or something, I think would be a, a very good addition to help sell a property, especially if it's a property that has been worked on as in very good condition. Like that's the kind of stuff I would think people be a huge selling factor. Um, mm -hmm. I, I was talking, um, I was talking with Jai, I, the podcast came out this week with, with Jake Hofer with um, Exodus and um, he's a land broker out of out of illinois um and he's got a really cool podcast called the land podcast where he kind of blends buying land and then the hunting aspect and i was telling him that you know 
there's so many reasons why you should be like managing your property so intensely, especially like, 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 like record keepings, you know, your, your hunting log, your observations, which then can, can track hunter. I mean, fawn recruitment, uh, how many does you're seeing per buck, all that kind of stuff. Why wouldn't you do that? One for the hunting aspect, but then two, if you ever go to sell the property, I mean, you could share that, that, that data through, through due deal, like in your due diligence, if someone was under contract, you know, you could, you know, show your records, all the bucks, you know, that you've killed the past two years. And I mean, 10 years in the does and it'd be a really good selling feature instead of just saying, Hey, this property is great. It's got big bucks. It's a big buck County, you know? Um, yeah. Well, th that's one yeah. of the same reasons when, when I'm talking to somebody who's considering about hiring me or another consultant to come on and, and write a management plan is it's one of my big selling points is don't look at it as an expense. It's a, it's an investment in that property. Yeah. Cause at the end of the day, look, now you have, um, like I said, I'm extremely thorough with my management plans. I I'm always available by the phone or hopping on zoom or whatever, if they have questions about what's on that management plan, but I try to be start to finish how to do everything, why I'm recommending it, you know, what time of year do I recommend doing it? I try to be extremely thorough in there, but at the end of the day, they never know. They might think they're going to have that property forever, but you never know what happens. You might want to upgrade. Right. You might yeah. have a medical expense. It, like some, who, it, it doesn't matter why, but people sell properties all the time. And all of a sudden you got documentation saying, look, here's what we're doing. Here's how we're managing the herd. Here's how we're managing our food plots. Here's how we're hunting it. It, that management plan is an absolutely crucial uh, document to have with you when you go to sell those properties, just because the next landowner can jump right in, you know, pick up right where you left off and continue on with that successful management plan. Absolutely. Because the, the majority of land buyers, the majority of them want more of a turnkey property that they can jump right into uh, as opposed to having like a raw piece of land, a fixer up. I mean, some people do want that. And there's some, there's a great, I mean, it's, it can be a great investment, especially if you can get it at a good deal. Um, but most people, you know, they, they want that because uh, it's so time consuming. I mean, I'm sure you probably deal with that when talking with landowners because you have your annual work that you're doing every year or that you're planning to do every year, like food plots, maybe burning, mm -hmm. you know, your seasonal work you're going to do every single year. And then you have the capital improvement projects, maybe, during the off season, you're going to work on the roads, like maybe during the summer, if things dry out, you're going to work on the roads or you can do the forestry project. And, or then, you know, you find a, right. You, you find a patch of uh kudzu. Like we, we had a, a, a little area of kudzu that resurfaced after about well, close to 10 years. And we were working on that. So there's always, there's always, so yeah, I mean, I, I would think that would probably challenging if someone doesn't have a, a realistic, you know, understanding about time, um, you know, just to get everything done, but it's a good problem to have. That's for sure. Um, well, um, to stay where we are with your, uh, consulting business, um, what are some stuff that you're seeing maybe, you know, around the Southeast and South that people, you know, um, I was reading some of your website that I wanted to bring up. It was, it was that you, that you think that, that, that you strongly believe that um, 
it's not that landowners don't want to better their property or better their habitat or try to restore some of the ecosystems, but it's just the, it's just the education of people not knowing what to do or not knowing where to turn. Um, you think that's some of the, some of the, you know, issues as far as the, you know, the lack of good habitat and some of the habitat that we've, that we've lost around the Southeast for quail and turkeys specifically. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the, it's my favorite part of my job, you know, walking a prop, walking the property with landowner, kind of seeing the light bulb turn on um, is we run into it so often where we just get so narrow-minded. It like take, for instance, the hinge cutting fad that was going around for yeah. um, several years there in the past where it's like every TSI project anybody was doing was like a massive hinge cut. And they just kind of lose sight of the big picture. Like, okay, yeah, you're, you're getting some horizontal structure, but, but what else are you doing? Like that area is far more shaded because you hinge cut it than if you would have just clear cut that area, you know? Um, people just kind of lose sight of that. So they're not looking at the complete year as far as filling those gaps. So it's something like where if you have all of your food plots and you're doing nothing but perennial clover, because, oh, look, it's, it's green and luscious in the spring and, it, and it's great for the deer. And I love perennial clover. But if that's the, every open area on your property, you're, you're running out of, of areas where those young poults can run around and, and buck, you know, um, if they are able to get around, you say you mow those clover plots down where, where they can get around in there on their dainty little legs. It's um, they're just they're sitting out there waiting for a hawk to, to peg them, you know, yeah, it's yeah. one of those things where I, I really enjoy the educational side of what I do. Um, one of my favorite phone calls ever I had, it was a couple of weeks ago or one of the landowners, uh, one of my clients called me and he was telling me that uh, the wildflowers in the old field that I, I had him convert were going crazy. And he's like, my wife doesn't like going out to the property, but all of a sudden, like she was paying attention. She saw all the wildflowers and the butterflies. Yeah. And it, we saw some fawns out there and the turkey poults flushing out of it. And it's one of those things where it's just, like I said, you're trying to com- build that complete picture and have every part of the year have something to offer not just for your whitetail uh but for all the animals involved like down south i i see a lot of uh invasive species management is just kind of getting away from people that's something that i have a very strong opinion on whereas like it's our duty it might not be your fault that we have a problem with invasives on your property but i feel like it's your you as a landowner have an obligation to to do better for it now I I'm dealing with on my property, the, the Johnson grass and the Lespedeza. I, I see oh, yeah. a lot of that down South and, and yeah, I mean, it does provide some cover for, for your quail poles and it does provide some seed for your songbirds, but we can do so much better as landowners. And I think that education side of it um, goes a long ways. Um, I have some, some stands of warm season grasses. I'm, I'm trying my, my hardest to get, established in, in a species composition that I'm happy with, but when they're overrun with Johnson grass, it's like, I'm trying to manage for big blue stem and switchgrass and some of these native grasses that I would prefer to see out there, but I'm just running into nightmares with the Johnson grass. So it's one of those things that like knowing when, when it's time to clean slate and start over, um, which would be nuking those fields and planting them again. Um, but just, just being aware when, when you're walking a property and you're looking around and saying, okay, this woodlot is it. Yeah. All the trees are green, but they're not healthy. You know, they they all look kind of sick. It's overstocked. Um, just being able to expose people to that and explain to them why it's important. Cause until you can 
relay the message that, hey, this is going to help your deer herd and here's why. A lot of landowners don't really think it's worth their investment because that's that's their thing. That's why they're hiring me. They want bigger deer, healthier deer on their property. So being able to see a real issue and uh, convey its importance to, to growing those bigger deer, to having a healthier herd uh, is is my favorite part of my job for sure. Yeah, we uh, we definitely battle Johnson grass, of course, sweet gums. And then we, we've got a lot of coffee bean weed um in our in our uh fields um especially like some some older ag fields that the farmer turned over to us that we that we now use for wildlife um we just i mean we spray and kill it but like when we go a lot of like the coffee bean weed is not out of the ground when we go going to plant soybeans so like we're spraying you know for weed control for other stuff, but like the, the plant's not up yet when we're planting soybeans. Mm-hmm. So then, and then all of a sudden I'd say like that stuff pops up um, maybe sometime in June and it just comes, I mean, like late, late June, early July just pops up and it just blows up. Um, but this year we took some sections where it was pretty heavy and just nuked it, you know, just yeah. kind of, just kind of written it off and just nuked it. And I think that's what we're going to probably, probably do over time. Um if uh let's say someone bought a bought a farm i know you know what let's back up let's say someone's got a hunting lease hunting leases are very very common south um you know some guys girls get together and lease lease some land what's some stuff in your opinion being a wildlife biologist land manager land consultant that people on a hunting lease can realistically do knowing they have that lease for 12 months. That's typically what it is, 12 months. And, you know, you might, might have a good relationship with a lessor, but you know, you don't really know how long it's going to last. Cause just like what you said, things change. People, people need money. They get sick, you know, or they, someone else comes along and offers them more, more money, but what's some things that people can realistically do, you know, for to better the habitat as much as they can without really dumping in a lot of money into land they don't own. So one one of the biggest things people can do, and I, I see across country, like Kentucky, for instance, is, is a one buck state. So depending on which state mm-hmm. you're in, a lot of times you'll have more than one one buck allowed. Um, something as simple, like you don't even need to do like an age restriction or a point restriction for your lease. Just making it a one buck lease like have that written into your lease agreement with the other people you're leasing the property with um i think you'll see a lot more selectivity as far as what people are harvesting um and people will kind of they'll hold back on the trigger on that two or three-year-old deer they might be waiting for a nicer buck because they know they're not going to have a second opportunity even if it's legal it might be written into your lease that that's something that that they could realistically do and they wouldn't have to disturb anything on the landscape if they do have if they do have the opportunity to, to run a chainsaw out there, or maybe do some food plots and some of the some of the smaller uh, areas on the property, if the landowner is okay with that, uh, little hidey hole food plots. I mean, there's plenty of no-till seed blends out there right now that yeah that you can really do a pretty good job with. I mean, I, I'd recommend going out with a fall blend if you have a little open area, a little wildlife opening, broadcast while it's still standing, and then just spray it and let that mm-hmm. patch lay down over top of it. Like it doesn't have to be super complicated. It doesn't have to be super pretty, but you can get some good food on the ground and put a nice little spot and just be selective about when and how you're hunting that area. Um, staying up on your on your doe harvest figured if if you've been leasing in that area for for a while now 
Um, you know how many does are on the property. I wrote an article last year talking about <laughs> quit stockpiling your does on your property. Like uh, yeah. people just have this mindset where I read that, yeah. They just think the more does I have, the more bucks you're going to have on the property. And mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, you might have more bucks visiting your property, but chances are it's all going to be at night or you're not going to see them. You're not going to get any daylight movement because they don't have to yeah. move. So staying up on, on your doe harvest, and it doesn't have to be one to one, you know, it, it could be two to one or somewhere in that range. 1.5 to one is pr pretty darn good, right? So staying up on your doe harvest, it'll make your ruts a lot more exciting to hunt. Um, another thing you can do. Uh, which I love doing is just making some sort of physical barrier to, to kind of generate some pinch points on those properties. Um, doesn't take a lot of time. Um, you can consider it an edge feather, you know, where you can approach the landowner, hey, look, I'm going to get more sunlight reaching your ag field if you're okay with me kind of opening up the edge of this property. Um, but just going in there and laying yeah, those trees yeah. down in, in a parallel fashion to kind of steer deer movement. Um, there's a lot of things you can do that aren't too intrusive that you'll probably be able to get permission from the landowner. Um, but as far as success goes for the leases, I think it's just being selective about those bucks that you harvest. Like I said, making it a, a one buck rule will go a long ways. Um, and then uh, just as yeah. far as enjoying the hunts like make sure you're not just saturating that property with sit after sit after sit being more selective about how you're hunting it um, will be a better experience for everybody involved with that lease yeah definitely i mean have, having some type of of rules or like a policy in place for you know picking stands or rotating stands but yeah you know you touched on a lot of things i mean shooting does definitely we we the last club we were actually was the only club we were in, you know, before we um, bought the farm in 06, you had to, um, the rule was you were supposed to shoot two days before we shot a buck, but it was really just that, you know, you shoot a buck, you, you did in minimum, you need to shoot two does per season. And that's just to get people to shoot does. And like when, we, when, when I have friends and guests and clients up to hunt our place, I, I, I don't tell them that. I don't tell them, well, you, you know, you got to shoot a doe first because then they'll shoot, see a 12 point, take a photo and say, I couldn't shoot them because, you know, and then I would, then I'd go right. I would say, thank you. And I'd go right in there and try to shoot them. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> um, you can't do that, but you just, you know, I, I made a point to really kind of stress to people not to make them feel guilty if they don't, but if you see a, a doe shoot. And then also just like we touched on a minute ago about, about the venison, if someone comes to hunt our place and because you know i don't know about you but i eat a lot of venison and wild game and i know how many deer i'd like to shoot every year to replace my empty freezer that's now getting empty now as we're approaching the fall but everyone don't everyone doesn't want an entire deer process some people just like to hunt and they want a little venison but they, so what i've offered to people in like we're doing, we've been having some doe hunts, uh, a doe weekend late September when we can first start shooting does is that I'll tell people, you know, take all the meat you want home, but if you don't want the meat, um, I will have people lined up that I will give the meat to. That way we're trying to meet our goals of filling doe tags, but I want people to pull the trigger, you know, mm -hmm. and then if they don't want the meat, that's fine, but I, I will have things arranged some people that want the meat or there's, there's some local food bank stuff like that um, but really like like what she said if anyone ha has a access to a chainsaw 
And if they can get a disc arrow, they can do a lot of things. I mean, even if you're, I mean, I've seen some buddies, they'll get a harrow and drag it behind a four-wheeler and they're an ATV or side-by-side or a pickup truck. I mean, it's amazing what you can do. I posted a video um, a couple weeks ago. We were, yeah, we were over there taking care of that kudzu. And I saw this, uh, this fire, this fire break, my dad mowed, I mean, not, not mowed, he dissed because we disc a lot of, you know, kid fire breaks dissed for, you know, for safety in case there's, mm-hmm. you know, fire off the road, but then also for food. And it was loaded with um, ragweed and he yeah. had just, he just light disc and it was like a, it was like a food plot strip or just, just straight, not straight, but primarily ragweed and some poke weed in it. Um, yeah. That's one of my, my favorite tricks is uh, if you're looking to get more forage in, in your old disc. field, do it, do it. Yeah. Dormant yeah. season disc and you get, you get more ragweed than you, nah, I won't say more than you want, but um, yeah, yeah, it's amazing how that stuff pops up everywhere. <laughs> it's crazy. And, and, and I'll, and I'm guilty of this. I'm not, I mean, I'm not preaching as if I'm, a, I'm not, a, not a know-it-all, but I was guilty of this where we would do it, but then we're not keeping tabs on it. Meaning mm-hmm. we do it, but I don't know what came up. You know, right. you know, so what came up and then when, 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 when that comes up, are the deer eating it? What are they eating? And that app, um, I naturalist and seek is phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, you just take a, take a, take a yeah. photo. Most of the time, you even, you, you just hover over the plant and it picks it up. I mean, that, that's, that's phenomenal to use. Yeah. We need to develop one that'll tell you like protein content and acid fiber detergent. <laughs> okay. So that's. That's, I mean, I'm sure someone's thinking about that. Yeah. So what you need to do is come up, come up with an app. It could be called the Whetstone Habitat, whatever. Take this. I've got right in front of me. I've got Craig Harper, Dr. Craig Harper's wildlife food plot and early successional. Yeah, this plant. one right here. Yeah. Well, okay, <laughs> that one. But is yours is yours autographed by by Dr. Craig Harper? No, mine. No. I, <laughs> I kind of, I kind of felt like a dork, but it was at the Whitetail Weekend right before COVID blew up, and I had them sign it and they make it out to my son just for the, just for the heck of it. Um, but anyways, come out with an app. It tells you the plan, and then it gives you like this kind of data. You know, like do deer eat it, or what kind of wildlife, seed production, the crude protein that would be how to manage it. See, do I need the, to manage it? <laughs> you know, that's the kind of app I want. I don't want an app that's like, you know, you know, it's this moon phase, and then we got this kind of tide coming in, and this the, today's the day to go right. and kill a 200 inch <laughs> box. Like, well, you know, I don't know yeah. about that, but okay. So, you, you, I wrote in a, a number of notes you were just talking a minute ago. You had touched on buck doe ratio, and everyone knows if you know if you've read anything in, in hunting publications, the one to one is like the target. In your professional opinion, what's the threshold of like you got too many does? Is it like ten to one, five to one? I mean, like at what point? I'd say anything it, over three, three and a half. Um, we're like it's. I mean, like a number. We're like it's alarming. Like hey, like you need to really hammer the dice probably need, three yeah i'd say three um it it's one of those things where getting the the sex ratio in line is much easier to maintain than it is to change um yeah so like people that buy those raw properties that you were talking about that don't historically they might just been hay pastures for the longest time and all of a sudden 
I can think of, of one client in particular who went in and, and plant, he had 600 acres planted, I think 150 or 200 acres in like row crops in clovers. And all of a sudden, I mean, I, when I was 200 out, I was acres out in clover. No, I mean, total, he had total tillable was like 150 acres uh, and he had wow. it split up between like row crops and clover, but I get out there and I, I must've seen 200 turkeys running around and he was talking about like, he's still getting good bucks on camera, but mm -hmm. he's not finding their sheds anymore. And it, he just couldn't comprehend like what happened to him. Like he was used to finding like 10 nice sets of sheds every single yeah. year and all of a sudden he's finding one or two but he knows the deer is still there because he's still getting cameras of them and i had to explain to him it's like look those mature bucks like yeah you got plenty of food on the property you're doing some stuff with the you have a great property but you have so many does and doe family groups in the area that are they're keying in on those food sources that the bucks don't want to bed on your property so it's not even that his deer aren't around, like he won't have an opportunity at a nice mature buck. They're there, but they aren't spending as much time on his property as they should because they're getting harassed by the fawns and the does. And they're kind of, you know, people don't realize that, that a doe family group's kind of the only territorial deer in the herd for most of the year. You know, they're the ones that are kind of dictating where the boundaries are as far as who can eat on this food plot, who can eat on that one. It's those doe family groups. And when you squeeze more and more doe, doe family groups into one area, you're kind of, those bucks are kind of pushed out and uh, they're kind of forced to use the outskirts of your property or hit those, those food sources at night. So um, yeah, getting, getting those sex ratios in, in line. And like I said, it doesn't have to be one-to-one. -one. Quite honestly, if you get yeah. it to one-to-one, -one, mine's pretty close in Kentucky. Um, I kind of slowed down on our doe harvest here last year because I want to see that get to 1.5 to one because what i'm seeing is a lot of the deer are breaking their antlers off you know mm -hmm. like they're just they're stuck fighting each other tooth and nail for every single doe that comes into heat and it ends up busting their antlers up so i like i say the sweet spots 1.5 does to every one buck you'll, you'll be in pretty good shape you'll still get lots of good rutting activity but you won't have the downside of it where those bucks are just running themselves into the ground every single rut, breaking off the antlers, getting injured, getting yeah. sick. So I think having yourself a little buffer there is, is on the safe side of how to manage what? deer. So on the doe families, that brings up a good point, or at least something I just thought about. Is there a normal type re uh, reaction or what type of relationship would um, a bachelor butt group? Because I mean, I I see a lot of bucks they form back up in bachelor groups January and February on our property. Mm. I'm not I'm not actually seeing my eyes you know, around the property, but trail cameras right. they seem to kind of form back up and then they'll stay together. But you know, or do they have? Uh, I mean, I, I guess I'm trying to ask based on what you just said. Is that not uncommon to have a doe family kind of run off uh, a group of bucks? You know, no, no I, I see it all the time. I think really? it's that maternal instinct. Yeah, because they're trying to they're trying to provide for their young. They're trying to keep yeah. the, the fawns safe at that point in time. I don't think the bucks they don't have that. You know, they're just um, they're just there. I don't know. I I think they're much more passive on up until they start to shed their velvet. Um, those doe family groups are going to be kind of running the roost. So the so the doe groups are doing that. I'm put I'm putting words in your mouth, but when are they not doing that? 
are they, do they kind of stop that behavior when pre-rut fires up and there's testosterone flowing and the bucks are a little more you know, jacked up and just like off season, the summer, are they running the, are the does running the show? Yeah, I'd say all, all summer. I mean, yeah. late summer, I, I do see them kind of intermingling in a lot of the bigger food sources. Um, but if you look at a lot of the smaller food plots, like you're you're generally not going to see the bucks and the does utilizing that that food source at the same time. Um, that, at least that that's sense. not what I'm seeing on camera in Kentucky. Um, yeah. It'll typically be the doe family group or be one or two does and three fawns rolling in they'll be on that little food plot. And then once they move off, I generally see the, the bucks come and it could just be the pattern. Um, as far mm -hmm. as time of day, those bucks just might feel more comfortable later in the evening. So those feel more at home um, a little earlier in the evening that might have something to do with it. I've never read any literature on, on those interactions, but just observationally what I've seen, it kind of yeah. seems like those, those doe family groups and the fawns kind of get first dibs on a lot of those food sources. I bet so. Those that that those matriarch does they are not to be messed with. Um, I'm gonna throw you a curveball here. See if you like those. Um, I'm currently reading uh, "Producing Quality Whitetails" by Al Brothers. I haven't finished it yet. Yeah, you know, it was written a long time ago. Um, so I know there's a lot of stuff in there that it hasn't changed, but I know there's some stuff in there that probably, you know, has changed, but he talks a little bit about killing spikes and that um, maybe if your land or your herd, if you have too many deer, especially too many does that he su suggests that it could be a good uh, opportunity to shoot spikes, especially if they're one and they haven't forked yet. Um, not that they won't get bigger, but that, you know, if there's another one-year-old that has four or a little basket rat, you keep him. But is that, I mean, that's not, that's not a, a, a thing that's still being implemented, right? It depends on where you're at. Like down in Texas, there's a lot of people once a spike, always a spike. But when I was working right. down there, that was kind of the mentality. I think the research has shown that is not true. A lot of that has to do with when that, it might be a result that you just have too many does that doe was bred later in the year. So that yeah. fawn started producing its first set of antlers later in the season because it was born later. You just didn't have time to throw on a fork. So it might be a result of having too many does on the property. Why that, that fawn was a spike. Um, I don't think genetically they're inferior um, in any way is at least that's what a lot of the research has shown is, um, it, it's yeah. a lot of it's a matter of just what time of year that fawn was born and how, what nutrition he had access to. That's a good point. Yeah. Cause I mean, there's, I mean, I, I've, I've gotten a couple of fat does um, on trail camera this summer, um, like late June that I guess we're, I guess we're bred late. I mean, that goes back to having too many does and, you know, some, the bucks not, not have enough bucks to breed them all. Yeah. I, he, he did. I haven't read yet about that. That's an excellent point about when they were born. He was more so probably really talking about like carrying capacity. You know, if you have too many deer, that by taking out, you know, of course you're shooting does too, but there's nothing. He he, he was saying it's kind of case by case. I just never really. I know people talk about shooting spikes, but it's not really for that reason. It's just that I mean, some people do talk about being, you know one spike always a spike, but of course I know that's been 
debunked. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not always or never. Um, from your professional opinion, would you rather suggest that someone go max out on food plots, you know, wall to wall, soybeans, whatever else, or would you, do you kind of push food plots more or like ground disturbance and kind of try to establish a native, native plant communities or is there a happy blend or there's you- a happy medium. So yeah. I, I love food plots. They're, they're, they're great nutritionally. I don't like hunting over them quite frequently, but yeah. mostly that's just because I get, I like my deer feeling safe in there, but I also get kind of bored staring at a soybean field for <laughs> yeah. three hours <laughs> until, until last light. Mm. Um, but I, I like educating people on how to manage the land. Um, if you're providing, like you do something like, say you're doing, let's go with an edge feather, for example, you're doing a couple of things there. You're daylighting that food plot or old field or whatever that, that field edge is, is sitting over. You're getting more sunlight out there. You're going to make that spot more productive. You're getting rid of a lot of those trees. You're producing some woody browse there for the wildlife. So all of a sudden you have an area where say you have quail on the property um, they don't have to fly as far to get into some good shrubby structure. You know, you're making an escape route for them. You're adding just another layer. Like one of the reasons I talk about, or I love managing for deer so much, um, people throw the term out, uh, edge species all the time. Yeah. Meaning yeah. that, that a white tail, it gravitates towards a change in habitat type where, where one habitat butts up against another one. Um, the reason I love managing for wildlife so much or for whitetail is they are so drawn in on those edges that diversity is always going to win you know what i mean that the most productive habitats are going to be the ones that have the most different types of habitat within that property um so if you're managing for for whitetail you're going to do a great job of, of breaking up that pro- property excuse me having yeah early successional habitat having old field having access to perennial plots here you might have a warm season food food plots out there but kind of giving those deer options you're also going to be encouraging all the other plant communities on the property you're going to be encouraging not only the songbirds visiting the property but also the pollinators the small mammals you know the turkey poults we were talking about your quail uh you want to paint with a broad brush and just kind of yeah just yeah. disperse those different habitat types across the property um i do like food plots i do include them in like all of my management plans for the most part uh, but you look at something like this year where we're dealing with the herbicide and the fertilizer and the seed prices, diesel, everything's just through the roof. And I've had a couple oh, of my yeah. clients where after, after talking with them, I, I recommended a few people just don't even worry about your summer food plots. Oh yeah. There's no reason yeah. to, you might be in ag country, you know, your neighbor's planting soybeans. Why are you going to waste those mm-hmm. resources to do those? So just let those fields go, go fallow through the year. And I, I say, Hey, you really want to help your deer herd out, invest those dollars towards a quality fall, diverse fall blend to get that in the ground. So it's yeah. always case by case. Um, I look, think of an area like I was working up in New York earlier this year, and there's tons of old field habitat around. And it was, it was beautiful. I mean, lots of goldenrod, lots of asters growing in there. And I wouldn't touch something like that. You know, I wouldn't go in there and till that up just so I can get some more food plot in there. I, I like what it looked like, how it was. It is just oh, yeah. as productive for white tail yeah. with no investment. So it is kind of one of those, it, it's case by case. You got to look at, you got to zoom out, see what your neighbors are doing. You got to see how many deer are on the landscape to really make those determinations if they need that supplemental food source out there. Most of the time I will include it. Um, 
if not to hunt over, it's going to be a nutritional thing to try to fill some sort of gap I yeah. noticed while on property in that nutritional calendar. Yeah, it's um, our, our food plots. It's you know, a lot of it is just it's just it's just hunting opportunities. I mean, creating hunting opportunities because everyone doesn't want to hunt. You know, I traditionally hunt mobily, but everyone don't want to hunt that way. And I get that, but but then also it's you know going back to shooting does. I mean, it's like if I mean. A lot, not the entire South, but you know, a lot of the South has some high, high deer densities. And if you're trying to shoot X amount of does, I mean, you need food plots set up. I mean, so that you can see them and shoot them to, to, to meet this goal. So in some cases it is, it is necessary to try to meet some of those goals instead of, you know, if you just want to like dump corn out a hundred feeder, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's some pros and cons to that, but, and then of course the, you know, the, like you said, the food plot side, as far as, you know, the nutritional side, is it a killing plot or trying to give uh, some nutrition? And for us, I mean, I, I tell you, warm season food plots, not always, but they can be a money pit. I mean, they are, I mean, one, it's like you can do everything right, but then you've got this animal that you're trying to I should say animals, but it's mostly just, you know, deer. You're trying to feed them, give them nutrition through soybeans or a mix, but then they just, they won't let it grow to, to get to where they just kill the plant by snipping it off so, mm-hmm. so quickly. And it's like, you know, and we, we did it, we pretty much done, have done all the tactics to keep deer at bay so they can at least just get browse tolerance. So we can let them in other than doing electric fence. And we're not going to do that. I mean, that yeah. is just, I know a lot of people do it for like big dove fields when they plant, you know, sunflowers or whatever corn for dove to keep the deer out. But I, I've heard a lot of story. I've heard a lot of story from people I know and trust that, and you probably know this too. You, you put a, you, you put a fence up with electricity and something's going to find a way to get in some deer, We'll just ram it or hogs will get in there or someone will dig underneath. They got a hole. And I know people talk about, you know, doing a fence where it's like the different strands that are like spaced out. Staggered. Yeah. yeah so they can't quite figure that out. But we, we've been using more and more of that soap, uh, Des X. It's a, you know, a insecticidal soap. But, you know, that only works until it rains. Um mm-hmm. And that doesn't so, but yeah, it, it, uh, this year we did not need to add fertilizer or lime based on our soil samples, but we traditionally add a little fertilizer to kind of help, but we, we, we didn't do any fertilizer on the food plots just to see what would happen just because based on yeah. cost, you know, based on cost, like, well, let's just plant them and, and, you know, uh, see what happens. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm like, you just kind of a good diversity is good. Um, let's switch gears and there's a couple articles I want to touch on one that you have written. Uh, the first one is about deer sanctuaries came out in January of this year, January 22 national deer association. I know it's on your website. You can also go to deer association.com. I think that's it. Just, so. just Google deer association or, or NDA or go to whetstonehabitat.com. Is that it? W H E T. So deer sanctuaries, it, I don't hear, I don't hear a lot of people talk about those as much anymore. It seemed like maybe definitely 20 years ago, it was kind of like, 
definitely popular. You know, you need to have deer sanctuary. And, and I'm very high on them. And we've got a nice chunk of land really centered on our property where we don't hunt into. But I read your article when it came out. I liked it because I definitely fell into, the, into that category of like, well, this is my deer sanctuary. We don't hunt in there. We don't do anything. But then I'm doing nothing for it. So then it kind of gets, so then it would, what happens like end of one season, I decided, you know, I, I'm going to hunt in there because it was the end of the season. I, I was going after a bug. It's like, I'm going to hunt in there, but then I don't really know that area. And then I started to kind of dive into it and it wasn't really. So in your opinion, what does a deer sanctuary need? Like what's, I mean, ideally, what do you need to have in there? So you want, food and structure <laughs> it's it's that simple a lot of people yeah. just designate an area as a, as a sanctuary and it'll, it might be a honey honeysuckle thicket or uh eastern red cedar patch or it's typically an area that they don't want to manage um it's how yeah. it gets designated as a sanctuary and i see it over and over and over and over again um but it's one of those things where you might be investing every every waking moment, every all the free time you have managing the rest of your property, but you're kind of staying out of that sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Or if you're improving everything except that sanctuary, you're trying what you're doing with creating a sanctuary is with the lack of human uh, intrusion into that area, you're trying to invite the deer to spend more time there. It's it's their safe space, right? If it's mismanaged and there's nothing there for them nutritionally, there's nothing there if the habitat's poor essentially you're trying to force them into a less than ideal situation. But my whole thing is it's all, all for sanctuaries. I have parts of my property that, that I might go in there if I get a perfect wind and it's, you know, it's that it's the rut or I'll pick and choose, but for the most part, I'm staying out of there a month, six weeks before season on up until season is over. But the rest of the year, I'm managing those areas exactly how I'm managing the rest of my property. You know, I'm doing the invasive species removal. I might be going in there and cutting in a bedding thicket inside of that sanctuary. I'm trying to provide those deer with everything, everything they need to kind of minimize stress. People, yeah, we were talking about it before the show, but people don't realize what a big impact stress has on those animals as far as antler development, their body mass, um, lactation, how much, how much milk a doe's producing stress is huge so if you're kind of forcing those deer by having that sanctuary if you're kind of forcing them into an area that doesn't really have much to offer they're they're not getting the benefits of that sanctuary you know they might be utilizing it but at the same time they're going to be stressed the whole time they're in there because they have to travel into the quote-unquote danger zone just to get food so i i just as far as sanctuaries go it's one of those things where it's, it's a good concept uh, but it's almost a dirty word in, in my vocabulary where I don't really like using it. Um, I'll use it to describe an area because everybody kind of agrees on what it means. But I always have that caveat in there that, hey, if, if I think you need to go in there and, and thin the woodlot or do an invasive species treatment or get in there and manage it in some way, shape or form, you have a majority of the year to be able to get that done. Those deer are still going to find it and use it once you start staying out of there. Yeah, But you going in there in the middle of summer to kill a bunch of bush honeysuckle is not going to stop a deer from utilizing that sanctuary during the hunting season. It just, it doesn't work. <laughs> like, people are so scared to enter it. They'll, they'll ruin their sanctuary. When, and quite honestly, a lot of the ones that I've walked through on people's properties, the deer aren't spending any time in there anyways. There yeah. might be tracks coming out of there, but that just means they were walking through it. You know, you'll walk through, you won't see any beds, you won't see any, any droppings. It's just 
they're not using it because there's nothing there for them. So why wouldn't you want to create a space that is inviting to them that has something to offer in those sanctuary spots? Is there a sweet spot on the size or is that just, I mean, and I know a lot of that answer is going to depend on the size of your property, your neighbors, and your you know landscape in general. I get that, but I guess I'm really asking: Is there a size where like it's just it's it's too small to do anything with me? Yeah, or r- rather, is there a size that's just kind of too big? We're like, you know, if it's like a hundred acre block, I mean, you you might create a lot of bedding and food to where you might have deer that don't really. Um, and I'm out of it. Yeah. I I have heard that before, uh, a while ago about, you know, sanctuaries are great, but like, if you don't ever, if you don't ever hunt around them or in them, you're going to have deer that live in there, depending on the size that by the time they come out, I mean, like, so you're hoping to catch them somewhere else. So it, it, um, like ours, ours, I, I have wondered if it's a little too large, but at the same time, it's like, it's not all the same like mm-hmm. the the habitat in that sanctuary um and i do go in there we, we go in there but it's just during the hunting season we don't so right. but that is on my to-do list to go in there and do a little bit of work um but do you, do you maybe see that or well, that could be the case if it's, it's a little too large maybe you have a lot of good food and cover in there that they just you know they might, yeah, might hold up in there a little too long for the for the hunter's sake. Yeah, I, I see it all the time, and it's one of those things where start hunting it. You know, yeah. Put put a cell camera in there, put a little hidey hole, tenth of an acre, just throw some some no till food plot seed out there, daylight in an area. You know, utilize that to your advantage. Like, if if you're set to the standard where I just don't hunt there, I don't go in there all hunting season. If you're just stuck in those ways, you're completely missing out because. From a hunting perspective, okay, now you got a, a mature buck that you know is utilizing, say, your 100 acres and just not leaving. That's a perfect situation because when you look at the majority of the data, like a mature whitetail, his home range is six to 800 acres. You know, if you gave him everything he needs in that 100 acre block, you just drastically increase your chances of being able to capitalize on it. So just being smart about when you, when you enter that area or have a game plan yeah. ready, you know, get all that stuff squared away well before season opens up. And if that means planting your fall plot, if you're going to do a little hidey hole kill plot in that sanctuary, if that means you have to get it in the ground a little bit earlier than you'd like to go ahead and do it. You know, it's, yeah, it's not a huge deal, but just make sure you're smart about when you're utilizing that. Cause, and if it's a hundred acres, even if you, the deer busts you, he's just going to go to the other side of that hundred acres you know yeah. it's not like you're yeah. going to spook them off the properties so I, I used to be so petrified just OC, i'm not an ocd person but i would when it comes to be this swim when it comes to hunting just so petrified of just bumping deer and bumping a buck and you know like if i bump a buck and then you know then you know he's gone you know for x amount mm. of time but it it was when i started to hunt more mobily and then you know you also, when you're hunting around trail cameras, it's interesting, you know, you'll, you'll, you know, I do think, and I've said this before, um, that I think people put way too much stock on trail cameras. I love trail cameras. They're great, mm-hmm. but they, they look, they, they, there's this idea that they just, that people think that I don't think they're really understanding what they're 
you know, but they, they think that like whatever's on that trail cam, that's what the herd's doing. You know, if you don't see bucks chasing doe on camera, they're not chasing yet. Or mm. if there's no bucks, you know, on the trail camera in the summer, well, all the bucks leave their, leave their farm during the summer. I was like, well, I mean, the, the camera's not seeing all, but anyways, my point being is that when I started to hunt mobily and then hunt around cameras, because you'll see so many more deer. I mean, a camera only picks up, unless it's on a food plot or a corn pile, it's only going to pick up maybe 25%, probably less of the deer that move in that general area, move around you, because they're just skirting by you. Point being is that these deer are like all around us. I mean, these bucks are all around us, and they they get bumped, or at least where I am, they get bumped by humans all the time, year round, for whatever reason. And they're smelling us and hearing us. And so... I've definitely got a little more, um, uh, you know, calm about not wearing my busting deer, you know, I mean, yeah. Especially when you're bouncing around a property, it's yeah. one of those where if the deer's busted you and you go right back to that same stand two days later, like you probably shot that spot, but if you're able to bounce around and, and utilize different parts of your property and be unpredictable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those, those deer, they're, Sometimes I think we just give them too much credit, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, uh, it's a pet peeve of mine when people call whitetails dumb, especially bucks during the rut, when they call them dumb or stupid or whatever. It's just like, I don't know. It just, I know people might not mean it that way, but I take it as like a form of disrespect. That's their dis- disrespect in the whitetail. But, um, but no, like they're smart. I mean, well, as a side note, why that irritates me is because that, I mean, that's how they survive. I mean, that's how they keep the population going by breeding. So if bucks didn't act that way, if they weren't acting like a dog that's, you know, smells a, another, a female dog in heat, if they didn't act that way, then we wouldn't have deer. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. People give them out there a little bit too much credit that, you know, they're very intelligent, but they're not some ultra intelligence. They're, they're going to do what they're going to do. And if, I think it's interesting of all the people I've talked with deer about, it was, uh, Dr. Mike Chamberlain. He was my second guest on the third episode. He said something we were talking, I was asking him about the correlation and what's, 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 uh, similar and the differences between managing, really managing habitat for deer and turkeys. And he was, you know, telling the differences about, you know, turkeys need to see, you know, whereas whitetails, you know, what deer do is just, they just eat and hide. And I've never, I've never really had someone kind of break it down that way, but that's what they do. They, they, they eat and they're hide. And of course they, you know, social, they're very social animals, but that's all they really care about just safety and food. And yeah. I think safety is, you know, a little usually more important than necessarily the, the food. All right. The second article I want to talk about just came out. Um, how to create heat. I'm sorry. How to create a heat refuge for deer. Uh, again, National Deer Association. I think it's probably on your website as well. Um, this was interesting. We talked a little bit about this before we started rolling the tape uh, on this phone call, but, uh, this is like a rabbit hole. I've been like somewhat diving into, I told you after, uh, Dr. Marcus Lashley brought it up about, cause you know, in the South, this is our stress period right now for mm-hmm. a number of reasons. And I've heard the, the guys, the Mississippi state university talk about Dr. Bronson Strickland and, um, uh, I tried to name the other one and, I, and I, um, 
and I'm drawing a blank. Anyways, they brought something up, and actually Marcus Lashley talked about it as far as burning. You know, a lot of people burn during the dormant season, but really the I, I, a very good time to be, to be burned is throughout the summer. So you have mm-hmm. more, you know, more tender, succulent plants for this for this for this stress stress period. But I mean, what can you tell us that maybe because I mean this is a subject does not get covered. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, yeah. So article, I think. It's, I mean, have you seen another article about this in the hunting? No, world? that's the reason I wanted to write this one. Yeah. It's, it, it's one of those things where, I mean, just I always use the example when I'm working with a landowner. Like, think about the last time you took your dog for a walk on a hot day um you get back from a walk and they'll be panting for 30 minutes you know laying on top of the the air conditioned bed they they just can't cool off heat is so stressful for those animals that can't sweat and on you let's put them in that same category where when you think about how much energy it takes to for that deer to cool off once he once he overheats it's it's incredible because they have to pant it all out you know they're not sweating so all of their cooling comes from exhaling hot muggy air and when it's 100 percent humidity that's just that's not going to cool them off anytime soon so um i want to give jacob dykes credit uh he's works with texas m it was his research that i was looking at uh for some of this which i i listened to him talk at the southeast deer study group when he covered it kind of got the bug in in my ear about me doing a a follow-up piece on his research but it's yeah, it's a topic that nobody nobody talks about. I don't think anybody even thinks about it. You know, we're sitting inside in yeah. our air conditioning. Yeah. We're just we're we're thinking about you know waiting for it to cool off to go out and shoot our bows. Well, imagine being covered in fur <laughs> and having to make a living and grow antlers yeah. and uh, feed fawns. You know, like there's so much going on right now in in the deer woods, and it's just it's uh, it's way easier for a deer this is what his findings were, were telling us it's way easier for a deer to change his behavior to stay cool than it is for him to cool off once he gets overheated so physiologically it's very taxing for an ungulate to cool off it works great in the winter time it works out for him because they stay warm longer when you think about it that way but during the summertime it's just absolutely brutal on those animals so i just kind of yeah. wanted to expose people that like yeah it's great when you're up north and in, in you're managing for for thermal cover during the winter time to, to whether it be a deer yard or a south facing hillside or tsi project or whatever to get them through those harsh winters but down south and even up north i mean we're getting some crazy heat waves and drought this summer so being yeah. cognizant and aware of creating an area where those deer can can kind of feel uh not only safe but have some high quality shade is is ideal and that's really what the research looked at so uh the the project that i cover in that it's talking about an experiment where they had some some captive deer and they had uh shade tarps draped up like you would get shade out your garden in your backyard just like mm-hmm. industrial um so there is uh the control was zero percent um sunlight or zero percent shade uh then he had 30 percent shade 60 percent shade and 90 percent shade and they were taking a picture every hour on the hour and figure out which tarp those deer were relating to and what the what the temperature was when they were relating to that particular shade type and what they found was once that temperature gets above 85 degrees fahrenheit those deer are uh 70 more likely to be under that 90 percent shade type. meaning they're relating to the quality of shade not just just having shade isn't good enough but as a land manager we need to start thinking about the quality of the shade we can provide our whitetail during the summertime 
what do you think would have been the results or you think, uh, I mean, would, would there have been some noticeable results you think uh, if they would have added in a wind element with that shade component? Like, let's say, you know, you, you've got your staggered out percentages of shade, but then you mm -hmm. also incorporate a little bit of a, of a, you know, a fan or something just kind of a, of a breeze. I mean, I would think they would, definitely hone in on that as well because i know that's was also in your article as far as you know wind mm -hmm. flow you know getting some right. bees because i that's something i i have thought about um probably the past year or two i'm going to bring that up because I, not all of our bedding but a lot of our bedding and it's not exactly by design it's kind of, i mean our farm is like a lot of the South where it's planting the pine trees. I mean, that's, you know, we do have some row crop fields, but it, we're growing pine trees, long leaf and, mm. and loblolly. Like, so anyways, I say all that because uh, a lot of our young pine thickets, when they're one and a half, two years old for the next eight or 10 years, will be a pine thicket or deer bed in before they get you know, too open. Um, and we're not necessarily, I mean, we, we are cutting small, clear cutting small blocks to create, you know, one on, on one hand is to have more revenue income coming in routinely, but then also is the diversity. It can make some great hunting, but like, is that, I mean, you, you walk in some of those areas and I mean, it's just, I mean, it's wall to wall, dog hair, thick pine trees. Mm -hmm. It's no thick, but I mean, there's no breeze coming through unless there's some, unless it's very windy. You know, mm -hmm. but um, I mean, that can't be great batting this time of year. No. Yeah. So um, I think wind, if I had to take a guess, um, I think if you added a breeze component, it, yeah. it might shift that 85 degree threshold to a warmer margin. But I mean, it, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I love like up, up in the Midwest and in, in the Northeast, it, those sumac thickets I talk about in the article is just textbook. It might not be the highest quality shade. You might yeah. be 50%, 60% uh, shade produced by those sumac thickets. But at the same time, it, I mean, the structure of those things, like when, when you hear biologists talk about like uh, ragweed being enough and small mammals to run around same thing yeah. with the sumac thicket for deer you know they kind of umbrella out it's very open on the inside the the stems it's like a single long stem per sumac tree um but there's enough room under there where you still get a really good breeze rolling through it yeah um i i do think that having that wind component definitely helps i mean if you're near a body of water uh getting in there and, and doing some some hinge cuts one of the things i try to I talk about hinge cuts near bodies of water or creek because you'll always feel like the thermals pulling, especially if it's yeah. spring fed or something. Those thermals will instantly be pulling downstream. Um, I like doing hinge cuts around those. You don't want to overdo it and, and stop that breeze. But at the same time, uh, if it floods, you don't have to worry about your <laughs> your structure floating downstream. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, so areas like that. And then the other thing I tried to, to touch on was say you want to go in on like i would recommend like a north facing hillside to add some structure um that's going to be in the shade most of the day anyways because you're on that that north facing slope but getting into an area like that you know there's a fine line as a land manager between like opening up that canopy and letting more sunlight in and adding structure to the ground so yeah. I, I think it's important yeah. to get in there and add some horizontal structure but 
that should be, you know, taking out your mid story. Um, maybe that'd be, be appropriate for, for doing some of those hinge cuts, mm-hmm. getting some stuff on the ground, but you don't want to be cutting anything open in that canopy and exposing more sunlight. You know, we're not doing yeah. it for food. We're not doing it as a food resource. We're doing it for thermal cover. Yeah. I, I noticed a lot of deer during the summer at our place. Um, not all of our pine trees, but we've got a large contingency of, of pines that are uh, 25 plus years and they've been thinned twice and they're on a three-year burn rotation. So based on that burn rotation, and it's a lot of those pines are in some very good soil, you know, just good dark, just good growing soil. So we'll burn, but it, it it's not for, for this land, we burn on, you know, we're trying to get three years, sometimes a little more than three years, but you don't get that quail cut look where it's just short grass and pine trees, you know, a lot of patches of, of, of blackberries and you'll get a lot of gum trees to sprout up. But anyways, so the trees are tall and open and they get sunlight for the structure to grow the ground structure, but it also breeze gets through wind get, if there's any kind of wind, Mm -hmm. it gets through as, as opposed to like I was describing a minute ago, those, young pine thickets, you know, basically the pine thicket is before it's thin the first time and you can't see through the bottom. It's, it's those things can, I mean, there's, you get in there and nothing, there's nothing flowing around, but like what you said, we've got some wetland systems some swamps and, and some Creek and some spring fed creeks. And those, man, you, you go down some of those and have, you know, a little bit of an elevation drop and this significantly cooler. Especially yeah, when, there's, when there's some running water. Yeah, it, it's significantly cool down there. Yeah, I, I, I was very impressed by the article. I mean, that's, that, that's kind of a next level um, of a land steward, or even if you don't own the land and, and you have a hunting lease or, um, you know, it's just some, it's something to think about that I, no one, like I said, I haven't written anything, haven't seen anything written about it, but that's, you know, you brought up another point about just, you know, how these species live and they're outside, you know, year round. That's another reason why I enjoy going up and working. Like I'm going for a couple of days next week to do some work. Um, and I like hunting our early velvet season where it's just blistering hot because, you know, it's like the deer are going to do what they're going to do. Like they're still out feeding. I mean, like they're, they're not going to wait till the first cold front in the rut you know, mm-hmm. to start moving so that you can shoot them. They're, they're doing their own thing and they're, and they're living and surviving in this heat. So it's kind of another pet peeve. I mentioned a earlier one, but people call deer dumb, but it's when people say that's just too hot, you know, the season's open, but they're going to wait. And it's like, you know, that's fine. But, um, I don't know. I, I, I think there's, uh, I think you, you can really, understand what they're what they live through if you you know if you hunt that early season how tough it is yeah. so that's definitely see how many ticks are crawling around on them and the flies they're dealing with it, I, I it's did, amazing yeah. <laughs> i noticed some three years ago i shot a, a bug that was even it was it was peeling the velvet most of it was off in fact it's uh it's, it's behind you me that on, one right behind you yeah, in fact, it was two, the one on the shoulder mount it has like a little bit hanging down, but it's, it's the European mount. He had so many flies all around his head in that velvet. It had a little smell to it, as you can imagine. Maybe you've been around deer and like pen raised deer or have shot one, but 
that velvet was a little, didn't smell too good. It was a ton of flies just all around it. Um, I guess all that blood coming off. Um, so we talked about land, habitat, what you do for work. What about hunting? Do you, do you, do you hunt? You like to hunt or is it just all? Yeah, I, the, I love off, to hunt. Of the I, I like managing. I like managing, managing for whitetail way more than I like hunting them. I do enjoy hunting them, especially there, there's something so rewarding, even if it's harvesting a doe off of, you know, like an early successional cut that you did or over yeah. a food plot that you planted, um, just kind of seeing it all come together and in a plan uh, in action. That That's always super fulfilling. Um, I do hunt. Um, like I said, I got property in South Central Kentucky. We got about 300 acres down there that we hunt on the Cumberland River um i just moved from ohio i'm down in tennessee now so i'm gonna be looking for something a little bit closer to me down here as far as a hunting lease or or some sort of agreement down here figure out where to hunt um i do enjoy it um i do like that early season it's one of those things where you're just dripping sweat um getting out there but it's just so exciting especially seeing them in velvet they're, they're more predictable yeah. that time of year um any little thunderstorm or rainstorm rolls through during that early season and you know exactly those bucks are going to be out in those big food sources early that day so i i like the the predictability of of the early season um the the velvet killing a deer in velvet my dad got a nice fucking velvet last year yeah. off our place and it was uh yeah i know what you mean about the the stinky we ended up stripping he was hoping to save the velvet it didn't, didn't work out but uh it's uh yeah, it's, it's great. Hunting, hunting is one of those things where I, it kind of works out good for me because I'm really busy. Like a lot of people like call me right when their season wraps up, you know, they, they might be disappointed. It didn't go exactly how they wanted it to. They, <laughs> they didn't get the buck they were after, you know, yeah. the neighbor shot the deer, whatever. They'll call me to kind of get some help going into the next hunting season. So like from, from late winter all the way through, um, late summer until deer season kicks off, it's kind of my, my busy time of year. And then once hunting season rolls around, people kind of pump the brakes as far as getting a, a professional out to their property. They, they think it's a little too late to do any sort of management plans that year. Um, so my, my consulting kind of slows down right when hunting season's kind of kicking off. So it's it it's a pretty, pretty sweet schedule, if you ask me. I get plenty of free time to, to enjoy the outdoors. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Consulting and yeah, I mean, really, yeah. I know when hunting season starts, that's what people are just focused on. But, but I mean, really and truly that's time to start brainstorming and, and, and getting a plan. So when January starts or really even in, in the December, I mean, you know, we'll, one of the first things we do is like, you know, look at our chemicals, you know, what, what do we have and what do we need for the next 12 months? So we can make one order for glyphosate and arson mm -hmm. or whatever else we need, just stuff like that. Start planning. Cause you, you know, it, it, it can all, it can all add up. Have you ever been in a situation with a property owner where um, you're just having to bite your tongue to not offend them? Like you're just seeing stuff after stuff that they're just, you want to wring their neck, but you can't because they've hired you <laughs> and you're biting my tongue because you're just saying something. You're going to get me in trouble. Um, like no, maybe one they're. Of, one, of the big, one of the big things for me is um, people just don't take like, like the red cedar thing. I think mm -hmm. Eastern red cedar is like God's gift to the earth as far as deer habitat goes. That one kind of irks me. I think people are kind of coming around to it. Um, and then harvesting those, that's the only other one that, yeah. that really like, I, I don't want to say pushback, but I, 
it's hard to stress enough the importance of it, not just from, from a deer herd's perspective, but from a hunting perspective. Like yeah. if you want to improve your, your buck hunting, you need to harvest more does in most circumstances, you know, you make that rut a little bit more exciting, but no, for the most part, I get, I get really good feedback um, from my clients. Most of them are completely understandable. I have one client in particular in uh, Northern Pennsylvania and my management prescription for him um, the first year was, Hey, you guys have been really hard on the bucks here lately. I recommend you. I mean, if you see a five and a half year old buck, by all means. Right. Like if you see a nice mature one, shoot it. But if you don't feel comfortable in, in being able to say that's a four and a half, five and a half year old deer on the hoof, like you and all your buddies, I recommend just hammer the does. I recommend not even taking a buck off that property unless it's, unless it's mature. Cause that's what they, they were running in. They were shooting every two and three year old on the property. They weren't seeing any four-year-olds and the buck to doe ratio was astronomical. It was one of those properties where I was just like, oh my gosh. And I, I told him, I was like, your goal should be 50 does. And God bless those guys. They went out there and they they put a hurting on those does and they listened to me and they followed out the management plan. And and they're it, it's just been awesome. I, I I feel so privileged to be able to to work with people that are passionate. Cause that's one good thing that I run into. Anybody that's willing to hire me to come in and give them advice on how to manage their property they're obviously passionate about the outdoors and they, they yeah. want to do the right thing for their land so i don't really think there's there's anything that that really irks me um I, i've had very great experiences with, with all my clients but the the harvesting dose thing is one of the ones where it's like yeah i know that's where your bucks come from but you know they, they <laughs> it's also where all the rest of your future does are going to come from too so yeah i kind of have um over the past couple number of years, I kind of have a love hate relationship with um, getting and sharing. Uh, not so much sharing, but just the getting um, big bucks from trail camera. Of course, you love it. You know, I mean, who doesn't? I mean, that's why we do it. And of course, there's there's other reasons, but you know, that's that's I mean, who that, that's the goal to get you know. But we went through a phase at our property where. Um, you know, we were building the property up. It was raw piece of land, doing a lot of things to it. Deer herd, deer herd excuse me, starts to get a little bit better. Well, then all of a sudden, you start getting more and more bucks on trail camera. You know, big bucks that you'll never really see, uh, but you but you got a picture of them, so maybe he'll show up. And, and but then all of a sudden, you you look at your doe numbers. And we went through a couple of years where we just we had we we were not shooting enough. Now we were also just earlier trying to figure out how many we need to shoot, but we were not shooting enough because we were buck hunting and we weren't really, I wasn't really understanding how many, what we were, we were really missing the boat on does and it's taken a while to get back to, you know, shoot the does and get back. Right. Um, but I mean, I found myself just really just, and that's why we had that doe hunt weekend. So we, you know, of course if someone sees a buck, you know, you can shoot a buck, but we just have a doe weekend, shoot the does. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's tough because, you know, you, you, you want to wait for a buck, but at the same time as like, if you don't plan to hunt, if you don't plan to have that goal of X amount of does, you're going to shoot, you're not going to get it. Especially with, um, I, I know people that have rules where like, they don't shoot does on food plots. If it's a green field, a food plot, no does, cause they want the bucks to come out. It's like, well, right okay um that might not work and then there's one you know it, it can't work for some people and there's a lot of people will do it where they won't shoot does they shoot does after the rut you know they they won't yeah 
And it's like, man, I see that a lot. You will, it, it never, like the does, you, the, the, the doe tags you try to fill in December can be very tough. It just, because right. I mean, those, I mean, think about, you know, better than I do, but think about what a doe has gone through by the time December rolls around. I mean, they've been through the ring. She's been harassed. <laughs> She's pregnant. <laughs> pregnant, and then, and then, then lactation, and, and and then raising some fawns, and then being harassed, and yeah, it's um, yeah, yeah that's the best, a lot. best time to shoot a doe is when she's in front of you. That's right. Yeah, pretty good motto. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, cool. I, I, Zach, I appreciate this. Um, I, I would ask everybody to check out whetstonehabitat.com. Um, Zach, where can people find you? So I'm most active on Instagram. That's at whetstonehabitat, W-H-E-T-S-T-O-N-E. Uh, whetstonehabitat.com is my website. Um, feel free to email me, fill out a, fill out a form on there, uh, form submission for me. Um, like to get to know you guys, figure out how to, how to get your property running in the right direction. Um, one of the things I pride myself in is I've, I kind of graduated from the school of hard knocks as far as all these habitat plans go. And anybody who, who manages land kind of goes through the same thing where it doesn't matter how much information is out there. Um, you're, there's, a, there's a learning curve to it. So I, I really pride myself yeah. in kind of yeah. lessening that learning curve, kind of giving people a, a jump start and going in the right direction. And like I said, I'm, I'm extremely thorough and take a lot of pride in my management plans. Um, as you can tell them, this is my favorite thing to talk about is, is like they'll have that. So, um, I, yeah. I'm extremely lucky to, to be in the position I am being able to help landowners into a, turn a dream property into reality. You know? oh, it might take a little sweat equity, but um, anybody can do it. I, the, the sweat equity just makes it that much more enjoyable when you're, you know, dragging the deer out or you're cooking that backstrap because you, because you've, you know, earned it, you, you, you put your time into it. And yeah, I, I think, I mean, what you're doing, you're a great follow. I love I me. Mean, the content you share um, is, it's very much a blended as far as, you know, holistic approach, native, native plants, not, I mean, you know, working the land and really bettering, bettering your land um, in, in a natural state, you know, combined with food plots and everything else. But, but I mean, it's, it's, you know, diversity doing it the right way. And what you just said is, is exactly why it's, it's great to have a consultant on your property because, you know, someone can read articles about what to do or listen to podcasts about what to do, but it's not going it, to, it, it, you know, it, an article is not going to apply to every property. And like, if you were to give out, you know, five of, you know, property hacks to shoot a bigger buck this year. I mean, it's like it, a lot of that is, it's not going to fit every property, obviously. So right. you hire someone like you, get some boots on the ground. We've had some consultants go, come in and, and it's great. Cause I mean, it's always good to see, have someone new, you know, someone to lay eyes on the property and why not someone be a, a wildlife biologist that has experience in this kind of stuff. So, um, I want to, let's, let's wrap this up. I want to ask you three questions and ask everybody. Um, first one is, can you give a recommendation, a book, rec I, I, you know, book recommendation, maybe a publication or maybe an article or a podcast of something that, um, uh, you enjoy and and and, and you, you want to you know suggest people um read it listen to it some good content yeah um 
so I, I just recently finished this book. It was called uh, Eager Beavers and Why They Matter. It's by Ben Goldfarb. Um, but it was really kind of interesting. I, I read almost everything I read is either a natural history book or um, some sort of um, biography. Um, but this one is kind of the ecological role of, of the North American beaver and kind of like what happened with the fur trade and like, why do we need this species on the landscape? It gets into all sorts of cool stuff, but kind of gives you a different perspective of like what happened. How did Yellowstone get restored? Like everyone wants mm-hmm. to, to point to the wolf. Nobody ever wants to give the beaver any credit for restoring <laughs> those, those wetlands yeah. and kind of getting, getting Yellowstone squared away. Um, it was it was really interesting. It was a fun read. It's a, it's a critter that most of the time landowners are cursing and swearing at. Yep. yep. Um, but it kind of gave me a newfound appreciation for it. Um, and Coyote America was another one I finished right before that. Um, yeah, that was a great yeah. book as well. Um, Dan Flores. What was that first one? You said Eager Beavers and what, Eager Beavers and Why They Matter. I believe is what yeah. it was called. I, you know we. We've got some beavers, and a lot of people, as you know, don't like them. I don't mind them, but they've they've converted. They've really started to dam up this little spring-fed creek, which, you know, they're creating some, you know, wood duck holes, and they're creating some, you know, pools of water for wildlife, which is great. But that spring-fed creek was such a natural travel corridor. It was like a, it was like a phenomenal mm. trail camera site because deer would just go up and down. I mean, the creek was maybe four feet wide, and they dammed it up, and so now it was this big pool. And they still go through there, but it's not quite not quite the same. Coyote America is a phenomenal book. Um, I, I heard Dan on one of four hours on a couple of podcasts, and then read that book, and that changed my perspective on, on that animal completely. Absolutely. It's one of the things that we were talking about earlier with, with landowners kind of give me, give me a little uh, pushback. And, and the coyote thing is, is one of those things that I wrote an article where um, I was talking with um, Dr. Will Goldsby mm-hmm. about his yeah. graduate research and um, kind of how even if you have all the if you have the financial backing of the u.s government you still probably aren't going to make a dent in that population <laughs> they um, tried they tried i know they? yeah coyotes yeah. are they're really cool yeah I, I'll, I hunt them and i shoot them but i'm not doing it i, I think people get the wrong idea where like they think they're crusading for the whitetail and they're doing this great big favor to their whitetail herd. Um, yeah. you, you can, if you do it at the right time of year, but most of the time, like if you enjoy it, I'm not telling you not to just don't kid yourself into thinking you're, you're doing a huge favor. Okay. So I've got to ask the question because you threw it out there that time of year. Is there a time of year where, let me, let me, let me back up. Of course, if someone was trapping year round, that's probably the best. I, I get that, you know, for of course, also if you're doing for raccoons and possums and armadillos, you know, ground nest predators, turkey, quail eggs, et cetera. But let's just stick with coyotes and deer. Cause that's really, that's, even though what I just mentioned, the Bob white quail and the Eastern wild turkey should be on people's radars and it started to become turkeys are more, it's really not mm-hmm. that time of year. Is there a, if someone only had like a, a little bit of time to, to trap cows or shoot them or hunt them. Can you really realistically make a difference? I have my opinion on this. Yes. So it general. all goes, 
it all kind of we keep talking about harvesting does for whatever reason on this podcast yeah. and sex <laughs> ratios but it kind of falls back to that because when you think about why deer go into heat same thing right. yeah, they're, they're swapping the landscape with fawns um so what i would do is i would figure out one's your typical fawn drop which might be first of june or whatever and um i would do a couple weeks leading up to that and then a month after like if you could target those four or five weeks right in there um that would be the sweet spot as far as you're opening in uh, a portion of that the the landscape you're kind of making it void of coyotes for for a short period of time whereas normally they have the the alpha male and female running around yeah. and they kind of got their territories what you're trying to do is you're trying to tear a hole in the fabric of the coyote landscape right. okay um, but you want to do it at a time where you don't create a void that's then going to fill in. So if you can give those fawns enough time to be able to run and fend for themselves, I think you're, you're on the right track. Maybe I'll, I'm sure one day I'll, I'll do an episode on, on coyotes. I, I don't know who I'd get on to talk about it, but I, I tend not interview will. <laughs> so I referenced him, um, in an article that he was a part of uh, a research paper, trying to think which one was it. it it was either florida or south carolina i think it was south carolina he did about fawn fawn predation mm -hmm. um he, he 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 had a whole team of people that was doing it but i know he's been on um the, the i think he's given a presentation or two about the southeast deer study group um anyways i've mentioned coyotes my thoughts on them but i i'm not to me it's like it it's a it's a topic it, it it's about as annoying to talk about like politics or mm. religion or COVID or whatever you, you talk to someone you're going to get some very opinions like i don't want to talk about politics i don't want to talk you know and counties can be such a hot topic with hunters i mean my you know as far as you know like they're, they're going to kill all the deer and it's like well maybe you have too many does maybe it's a good thing maybe you don't need to you know let them yeah. What do you think black bears are eating? Nobody ever blames a black bear for that. You know? uh, yeah. Um, it, it, yeah. So it's um, but um I think a pretty cool animal. Yeah, if anyone has that, that I'm gonna check out that beaver book, and that's another topic that I want to get to um as far as beavers for sure. And and coyotes, that's a fact. I mean, just that's just a fascinating book, whether you like to hunt them or not. It's not even a hunting book. It's very fascinating. All right. Second question is, um, what is your favorite or just a go-to kind of classic wild game dish that you like? I know you don't. Yeah. So, I mean, just Does something. Deer? No, no. That's, that's what I say. Game? Wild, wild game. In fact, a lot of people have said uh, uh, turkey. Um, yeah. So, um Last year, I started doing this new, uh, I got a sous vide, I don't know if you know, like an immersion yeah. cooker, mm -hmm. and I started doing the, the turkey just with some butter and uh, uh, thyme and garlic and sous vide in that thing for a couple hours, and then just pan searing it on the on the grill, and it is absolutely incredible. That sous vide is a godsend for, for people who might struggle otherwise with cooking. Is it um, a, a, a turkey breast? Yeah, yeah, the breast, so I'll just... Um, like I said, I'll, I'll coat it in uh, some sort of all all season all purpose seasoning, um, and then I'll throw it in the bag. Throw some butter in there. Throw some rosemary and thyme in there. Um, seal it up. Throw it in the submersion cooker. I can't remember the temperatures. I haven't written down in my in my kitchen, but just do it for whatever the poultry setting is. Um, and then just that sounds good. Sounds real good. Yeah, just it? flash flash sear it on either side. Um, so good. Juicy. Then did that dry out? Yep. 
I've kind of where I don't really fry turkey as much. I know that's what everyone's kind of go to, but I I like smoking the turkey. You, I mean, the turkey breasts and tenders. You know, brine it for a day, and then just kind of doing a low. And it, it does not take long to smoke it. It'll it'll at a low temperature. What are you putting in your brine? It's mostly water and some salt, and yeah. uh, I put brown sugar. Yeah, I've seen people do like peppercorns and all sorts of weird stuff. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know how much that's really getting in besides the water. Um, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, but that, that made it, I mean, I don't, I can't imagine smoking Turkey without doing that, without, without doing the brine. I mean, a chicken, you can get away with not brine and chicken, like a whole chicken of smoke. Most people do it does taste good, but you can probably get way better with a, get, get away uh, with it without brining uh, chicken. All right, last question is, uh, of course, we try to focus mostly on the Southeast on this podcast, hence the name. So what, in your opinion, uh, I should say professional opinion, um, is something uh, that should be on people's radars for as far as conservation in the South? Um, you know, people throw, throw around that word conservation a lot. It's definitely become a buzzword, you know, mm-hmm. in the quote hunting space you know a lot of people use it for the right for the right right way and a lot of people use it just for uh just 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 to use a buzzword you know that they're but what, what do you think is some real something real that should be on people's radar i mean whether they were a, a landowner or they're a leasee and they lease land um something they you know that they should focus on and and um so what do you think so the one thing that's kind of been consuming my my free time right now has been trying to pay attention to the Return Act that's trying to go through. Oh yeah. Cool. Um, as far as stripping Pittman Robertson funding, I think that's something everybody should call into their congressman about. Try to educate yourself on it. Um, yeah. It's it's one of those things where, in theory, when you when you listen to the reasoning for why um, he's proposing to do something like that, um, in theory, I can kind of see why he has that headspace, but um, I, it we yeah. do not need that in the conservation world. That's such a valuable funding resource to us. Um, if we lose PR funding, and it, then it, it's no longer a user pay system for conservation. So that's one thing I'd, I'd really try to pay attention to here moving forward. I don't, I don't want to say, I, I don't think it's going to go anywhere, but just the fact that, that that's hitting the, the floor for, well, I think should, uh, should raise some eyebrows by uh, hunters and anglers. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I, I was... I think it was end of last week. I looked back on the uh, on the congressional page as far as every all the co-sponsors and, and and four people had backed out. Four four congressmen, one of them being uh, Buddy Carter here in Georgia. Um, I know he got some feedback. Um, um, but yeah, it's it, it it's it's a little surprising. But I guess it's you know there's. You know, you got people that, you know, buy guns and shoot guns and collect guns, but they don't hunt, you know, and and so I I get that. But I I also personally think there should be a lot more included uh, besides just hunting and archery equipment. There should be more camping and more mountain bikes. Yep. But, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, and and I posted something on the Return Act uh, a couple weeks ago, but it's like, for me, it's like, it's not so much like, like, tell me what you're going to use it for. Like, tell me the reason now that you just want to get rid of it, but like, mm-hmm. what, like, like, how are you going to replace it? 
Um, but I mean, right. me, just, just look at the history and like what has been used for. And we, uh, there was a billion dollars generated last year. I mean, it's like, okay, you want to get rid of it. Well, how are you going to replace it? Well, even if they could replace it, let's say like the, the tax they were talking about, like an offshore drilling tax, some minuscule tax on the offshore drilling that goes towards, there's a couple of things there. What if they, what if they quit drilling? We're kind of yeah. heading in that direction is one thing. So there drives up that revenue stream, but let's just say it was price matched, whatever, or a billion dollars a year or whatever it was earmarked for, for that. We no longer, like we, like I said earlier, we lose our seat at the table. The reason we have yeah. so much game in abundance is because it's it's hunting and fishing license sales uh, written into the PR that go back to the state. So we have a very strong voice when it comes to conservation decisions being made and those commissions um, have to listen to us. If it's now funding coming from an offshore drilling rig, who's going to listen oh, to yeah. us? It, it, right. It's not going to go towards whitetails and turkeys. It'll probably go towards the aquatic, you know, yeah. or the aquatic wildlife that was, you know, killed off from the, what was the spill back in 2010 in the Gulf? Uh, was that X? I don't know. I don't BP. I think it was BP that went in there. They're going, but anyways, not that those things are any, any more or less important, but yeah, I mean, it's, Think about the conservation stuff like Return Act, Pitts, Pim and Robinson. It's like, you know, it's 2022, and a lot of us like uh, that are actively hunting don't remember because we weren't alive. But like, wasn't that long ago? There was a lot of areas, that's like in South Carolina, like where I. There's a lot of areas where there weren't a whole lot of deer, like in the 60s or 70s mm-hmm. back still. And then, I mean, talking about like a hundred years ago, there wasn't a whole lot of game around when we're, when we're coming out of the out, out of the meat market uh time when people could hunt year round so like it, you know it wasn't really that long ago where we were put this kind of stuff in place to really you know ha, you know have conservation working so um you know it's it, it's it's i'm glad to see more people talking about this kind of stuff because it seems like it seems like over the past like two years or year and a half, it's been like every month it's something new. It, it's like a new state imposing right. something to go after, you know, uh, hounds, you know, whether it's bear hunting. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, and it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you, 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 you know, you got to stay in your ground. And like you said, if you give something up, you're going to lose that seat at the table. Um, yeah. I mean, if, and that's the whole thing is if, we start drifting away like if they start phasing out hunting as a lifestyle through policy changes like they just make it unattainable for people to hunt fish we just that's our connection with the outdoors you know if we're not engaging in in that type of consumptive manner with the Mm -hmm. outdoors i think it loses like it's no longer quite as special as it used to be i think we appreciate what we have much more when when we're fully engaged with what's going on out there and and if they're trying to sway us away through policy changes from being able to live that type of lifestyle i don't think it holds very good uh it's not looking good for the future then so we do like now is the time we need to stand our ground call your congressman um be engaged be educated you just don't want to stick your head in the ground for for these kind of things um do what you can that's right absolutely well zach thanks for being on um on the call today i've had a blast i could talk with you the rest of the day about just really his habitat i mean we didn't really touch a whole lot on on hunting but you know i mean whether whether you own land or you hunt even even public land 
in my opinion, I've said this before, but the more you learn about habitat and the game species that, that you hunt, you're going to, you'll become a better hunter. It's not necessarily about tips and, and tactics to kill the animal. It's, I mean, learn about, you know, if someone's like, for instance, someone's planning a, a early velvet hunt, I mean, um, diving into the, you know, what they need and what they look for as far as the heat refuge. I mean, that's a big mm-hmm. thing. I mean, that can help you right. can help you fill early season tag. So it's been great. Again, uh, whetstonehabitat.com. Uh, where can people find you besides the website, Zach? Uh, website, Instagram at whetstonehabitat. Got a YouTube channel. I'm hoping to start churning out some more content here. Oh, as cool. They, as, they nice. quit, as they quit traveling quite so much this year. Um, shoot me an email, Zach at whetstonehabitat.com. I'm, I'd love to learn more about your property and see how many people I can help out here. Um, 2022 is kind of filling up quick for me as far as the end of my consulting season. So if you guys need any, yeah. anything looked at, um, now's the time to reach out. Well, thanks for being on. Uh, everyone follows Zach, reach out to him. If you have any questions, you want to book him for a consultation, it can be well worth it. And, and, and getting someone to come in um, can be, I mean, even if it's, you're going to point stuff out, but just to have someone come in to, to provide a management plan for you and give you those hard dates to, you know, look, you know, to make sure that you meet, um, meet those goals that, that, that's, that's something that uh, can be really priceless as far as getting your land uh, together and, and, you know, trying to make it better. So maybe one day if you, you want to sell it and move on to a bigger property um, or just to better your, better hunting wildlife, you know, leave, leave it better for your kids. Having a, you know, having a, um, you know, lasting impression or, you know, really changing something in your landscape. I mean, I mean, how cool would that be for your, you know, for your grandkids to talk about how, um, you know, when, you know, when the grandfather got the property, it was really kind of barren's raw piece of land, no turkeys. And then, you know, um, the grandfather hired Zach to come in. And next thing you know, they've got, you know, booners crawling around and wild turkeys and um, granddad to work. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, you know, that that's I mean, that's you know, that's kind of building a legacy. And 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 that's what really what it should be as far as you know, bettering the land and um preserving what we have. So Thanks again, Zach, for being on on this call. And um, I will talk with you all next week. Thanks, Zach. All right. Thanks so much, Mark. Appreciate you. Have a good day.